We're going to do a little bit of a summary today because Brahm's done the last however many weeks, six weeks or seven weeks or something, and there's just so much information that we are packing in and having to understand. So we're going to do a little bit of a summary. Uh, we don't want to race ahead and have our ears tickled. You know, it says in 2 Timothy 4, it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their, their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. So we don't want to be people that just want to have our ears tickled. We have to learn by precept upon precept, line upon line. And like Brahm always says, let's be intelligent believers you know we don't want to be babies still on the milk of the word and there's an incredible scripture I like to give a scripture for everything every big kind of comment like that that I make I like to give a the biblical principle that that goes within Isaiah it says to whom will he teach knowledge and to whom will he explain the message those who are weaned from the milk those taken from the breast for it is precept upon precept Precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. All right? So that's, our, that's how we're approaching uh, the book of Revelation. We're not just going for the big whiz-bang things, the big uh, grabs, the lines that will grab our attention and, uh, you know, the things that are going to really um, make us emotionally respond to something you know, we'll get to all of that. We'll get to the mark of the beast. We'll get to the one world government, all these different things that you hear people talk about. But we have to understand, guys. We have to be able to do this properly. All right. Now, Revelations 1 verse 3 says this. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. So it turns out I'm blessed. And blessed are those who hear and keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So guys, we're blessed. And I know that you are discussing this in your life groups, so that is fantastic. So that means you're really drilling down and trying to grasp and digest the, the truths that we're learning, which are so profound and so many. And yet I believe if we will stick at this, we're going to begin to realize it becomes more and more simple once we understand the language and the meaning of the language that is being used. You know, I've never been uh, bold enough to preach from the book of revelation except you know except for what i preached on about going back to our first love many years ago but apart from that all the typology and all the the imagery that is in there was way too confusing for me so i didn't want to go near it but now as we're beginning to break it down and we're going precept upon precept line upon line here a little there a little it's beginning to build an understanding and a picture of what it is we need to, to grasp. And so I'm actually getting really excited because it's, it's like it's opening up this, this whole code for me. So, so far, what have we been doing? Well, we've been studying the seven letters in chapters two and three. And encapsulated in these letters is incredible insight into what Jesus values most in his body here on earth. You actually begin to see what his core values are for his church. And you also see the, see the clear, precise order in which he speaks to us. Because, you know, he always works through the order that he established. God's a, a meticulous God and he's a God of order. And we see how this is what Jesus does. He works through the order that he established. And first, what was the order that he established? He speaks to his ministry. He speaks, as the Bible says, he holds the angels, the seven angels in his right hand. And I believe that means the, the seven leaders, the, the elders of those particular churches. So he speaks to them first and then he speaks to the congregation. Then he speaks to the church. 
All right? So we need to be listening. That's why it says we're blessed if we hear, read, and keep all these truths. And it's essential that we read, hear, and keep all the truths that we learn in this book. So let's be hungry to understand. Now, three keys so far have emerged in my thinking. And uh, in the letters to the churches, these are the three keys that I believe Brahm has really imparted to us and kind of summarized for us, which helped to become a bit of a, a stake in the ground or a pillar for us to be able to bring our thinking back to. Number one, it's not the chaos in the world that will be the undoing of the church, but what is tolerated within the church that will be the undoing of it. Yeah. Number two, there are two major themes in the book of Revelation, that is the revelation of Jesus and the triumph of the church. And we begin to see that there's a correlation between the two. Number three, the key to our survival or our triumph as the church of God in any given situation is not seeing Jesus, come on, say it all with me, we've heard it enough now, is not seeing Jesus in the light of the situation that we are in, but seeing the situation we are in in the light of who Jesus truly is. I love that. So let's summarize how we understand that so far. We're going to take a pause from just moving straight ahead and jumping into the next chapter. And we're going to start to put together today what we've learned so far. You know, as we study the messages to the churches, what becomes really clear is that the different ways in which Jesus reveals himself to all these churches is relevant to their situation and what they had to deal with. He connected who he is and what he represents specifically in context to what they are specifically facing. I think this has been one of those aha moments for me is to recognize these things in, the, in, in this particular book, well, in these first few chapters anyway. So he's confronting the worldly manifestation of their issue. So remember, every church, all seven churches, has a specific issue that he's honing in on. And he, he's able to confront the, the actual manifestation in the world of their issue, and then he mirrors back to them the specific spiritual answer that is contained within the revealing of who he is. Wow. So the revelation of Jesus is so huge. Now, I'm going to read what that revelation is in a minute. We read about it in, in Revelation chapter 1. And yet he's presenting to each church only that aspect of himself that is pertinent to exactly what they are facing, which clearly shows that he wanted them to see their situation in the light of who he is. So let, let's just get a bit of context here. I want us to remember what kind of catching our breath a bit and we're going, okay, what have we learned so far? Let's start to put it all together. Every week we're drilling down on these huge uh, principles and teachings about each, each book. But what, what's really going on here? When you zoom back out, and I love to zoom out and see the concepts and the principles and the big picture of what God is saying to us. So let's, let's refresh our thinking again from Revelation chapter 1. Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His feet and his hair were white, like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. 
His feet were like burnished bronze. Sound familiar? When it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. So we will hear different portions of the fullness of this vision contained in each letter as we start to go through now the summary of the seven churches. And I want us to really hear, uh, sorry, I'm just keeping an eye on my time because I could get carried away here today. All right, I'm going to try and be succinct, uh, but there's just uh, so much amazing information i want us to grasp this now don't forget as you go through this in your life groups and if you're not in a life group guys get into one get in you can zoom in because brahm and i actually send the guys out our preaching notes everything that we preach from we're sending it to the life group leaders so you guys get to dissect it and disseminate it and really look through it and and begin to digest it into your hearts and what this really means all right, so we're going to look at the church. Now, we're going to look at the seven churches. Now, each church, it's really fascinating when you realize Jesus actually says in every single letter, I know, I know your deeds, I know your hard work. He, he lists different things that he knows about each of the churches. I know your deeds, your hard work, I know where you dwell, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, I know you, you, you have a reputation. There are so many things that he says, I know about these things. I know about your hard, I know all the hard work you've done, I know the, what you've tolerated, what you haven't tolerated. In other words, he's very intimate with every detail of his church, of his bride, of his body here on earth. And he's also really aware of all their issues, and uh, hence he's focusing in on them. And he gives a warning to five of the churches, but he gives a promise to two of the churches. So we're going to break apart the first five, the five churches that he gives a warning to, we're going to look at first. And he basically says in Revelations 2.23, he says, I'm going to give according to your deeds. Now that's, that's a scary kind of thought, that he will give according to the deeds, especially if those deeds are not good all right but then the amazing thing is he goes on to give the solution and he mirrors himself back to them just like a coach and says you know what I want to present a part of me that if you will look to this and see me and and see who I am in the context of your situation I'm going to lead you into victory because basically he was saying your victory is discovered in who I am and uh, we see that we see the different parts, the different aspects of himself that were presented from that chapter one vision that I just read from. We'll see different aspects. He takes different parts of that presentation and gives it to them and laser focuses in on their situation and says, now look, look at this part of who I am. This will help you. This will deliver you out of your situation. And I'm going to lead you to victory. If you will look to me, you will find your way out of this situation. And in the midst of all of this, you begin to understand his core values that he has for his church. It really gives us the parameters of how he wants to do church and how he sees his body here, his church here on earth. He gives a pathway to conquer. He gives a pathway and a journey out in order to be victorious. And ultimately, you know what, guys? Ultimately, you walk away from this and you go, you know what? Jesus is in control. He has absolute authority he rules and he reigns he's in complete control so let's look at the first five churches uh, that have the warnings and of course the first one is Ephesus that I had the privilege of speaking about now remember we're holding this up 
in the light of not seeing Jesus in the light of the situation we are in, but seeing the situation we are in in the light of who Jesus truly is. So let's let's focus in on that that principle, that that uh, perspective right there. What is their situation? Well, their situation is that they abandoned the love that they had at first. They were a loveless church. They lost the essence of who they were as a church. And yet Jesus commended them and said, you're very hard workers, you're contenders for the truth, you've tested the false, prof- uh, the false apostles, sorry. you've persevered for my name's sake, you've not grown weary. So these are all good things he's commending them for. And you've hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which was a a pagan belief system. And yet he goes on to say, you're actually in danger of extinction as a church. And I'm going to remove you as a lampstand if you don't... uh, if you don't listen and take heed of what I'm saying to you. So they're in danger of extinction as a church and being removed. This this was an existential threat against them as an actual church in that city. And uh, basically Jesus is saying to them, if you don't love, you don't have the right to exist as a church anymore. And what we learned when we went through that letter was that beliefs without love just become legalism. And uh, I know because I've experienced, I've been in a church like that. They did all the right things. They contended for the truth. They tested the false doctrines. They persevered for his name's sake. But man, they got legalistic in their implementation of those doctrines. And in the end, they destroyed a lot of people's hearts and a lot of people's lives. And a lot of people got discouraged in their walk with God to this day and have not really found their place and landed properly back on their feet again. And they're in their 60s and 70s, some of them. And that's tragic. But you see, God, Jesus loves his church so much here on earth that if we don't love, if that's not the one thing that sets us apart as his disciples, remember he said, you, they will know you as my disciples by your love for one another. If you don't love, you don't have the right to exist as a church anymore. So all right. That's their situation. They're a loveless church. They abandon the love they had at first. How does Jesus present himself? How does he mirror himself back to them in the context of their situation? Remember, seeing the situation that they're in in the light of who Jesus is. So they're in a situation. Now, let's look to who Jesus is and what he's presenting himself to them. Well, this is how he presented himself. The one who holds the stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, Now, we discovered that this is a picture of the Old Testament high priest in the most holy place, and his job was to walk around the most holy place and be in charge of all the utensils and all the elements that were there. And with the candlesticks, they they were meant to, or these lampstands, they were meant to light up the whole sanctuary so that he could minister to the Lord. And his job as the high priest was to trim the wicks of this candlestick, of this lampstand, to clean out the useless dead ash Fill the oil to shine. So it kind of sounds familiar, you know, because he's now our high priest. The Bible tells us he's our high priest. So we know also that these lampstands are a picture of the churches because he told us that. So what can we learn from this? It shows that Jesus is in charge and is the one with authority over all the churches, which are his lampstands that are meant to burn with constant light. So then he gives them an invitation to remember. To remember what? Remember from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. To love. 
So he's calling them back. He's holding the mirror up and he's saying, if you don't, then as the one in charge and the one with authority over the churches, I'm able to remove you completely. So he's holding himself up. He's, he's making us a, a statement and he's walking around and he's showing them, this is, this is who I am. I'm in charge. I'm the one that keeps the oil burning. I'm the one that will correct you. I'm the one that will trim the wick and keep the ash, the useless ash cleaned out. I'm the one that's in charge of this. Now, I can remove you completely if you don't return and go back to what I I said, I'm going to remove your lampstand. So they desperately needed to see the issue of lovelessness in the light of Jesus walking amongst their lampstand in charge of assessing their deeds, able to remove them. Okay, so that's how they needed to see him. If they could see their issue in the light of who he is, the one with authority to remove them, then it will lead them to repent. And then you know what? He will restore their heart and coach them to victory. All right? So that's, that's the first church. What about the next one that he gave a warning to? It was Pergamum. We'll hold Smyrna till the end, okay? Let's go to Pergamum. Now, I'm saying all this in the light of the you guys you've journeyed with us over these last however many weeks. So go back and listen. If you want to drill down a little bit in your understanding, go back and listen to these specific weeks to get a further understanding. But I'm summarizing here and bringing the whole thing together as I see it. All right, so with Pergamon, what's their situation that, they, uh, that they're in that they have to see in the light of who Jesus truly is? All right, well, their situation is that they held to wrong teaching. He said to them, you hold fast my name. You did not deny my faith. Remember, he's the author and the developer of our faith. He's the giver. He's the initiator of our faith. So that's why he says, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, which is one of their guys. My witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And earlier he says, you dwell where Satan's throne is. Now, I want us to just pause there for a second and go, you know what fascinates me about this is that Jesus is not preoccupied with Satan's throne. (laughs) He's not going, oh, my gosh, Satan dwells here. What are we going to do? Because why? What have we learned? It's not what happens out there with Satan that destroys the church, guys. Come on. It's what is tolerated inside. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where Satan's, you dwell where Satan's throne is. But that's not the point that he hones in on and hammers them on. He goes, okay, I know you've got all that. I get all that. I know that one of you got killed and he was my faithful witness. He was my faithful one. And you know what? You didn't deny my faith. That's great. You, you held fast to my name. So what was it then that was tolerated by them that, was, that had the potential to destroy them? They yielded control to false doctrines. That was the real threat. Not dwelling, not living where Satan's throne was. It's, it's incredible, guys. See, do we understand who we as the church really are? If we will grab hold of this, if we will understand who we are as the church, the real identity that we are as the people of God and not getting so spooked out by, oh, is it this? Oh, is it that? Oh, my gosh, what about this curse? Oh, my gosh, what about that That thing? That's, that's satanic. Oh, my. Come on, guys. It doesn't matter what happens out there. 
It doesn't matter if there's a satanic cabal of pedophiles or this garbage that you hear being spoken about. Sorry, but I had to put that in there. Like seriously, do we know who we are? Do we understand who we are as the light of the world? Do we understand the role of the church, the power of the church, the authority of the church? See, I get bold when I've got nobody in the room with me. I say all sorts of things. All right. But what were they doing? The real threat was that they had adopted and accommodated the false doctrines of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. What were they doing? They were accommodating paganism, which included sexual immorality and a distortion of worship. So if all that stuff's out in the world, it can't harm us. It can't touch us. We don't have to be as afraid of paganism and, and all the sorts of things that are in the world around us. It's when it's in the church. That's what will destroy us. Remember, that's what Brahm keeps saying. It's not what happens in the world, that the chaos that's in the world that will destroy us. No, it's what happens in the church. It's our belief system. See, the core value that Jesus looked for in Ephesus was love. The core value here is sound doctrine, sound teaching. Okay? So what so these these Deeds or these doctrines, sorry, of the Nicolaitans and of Balaam. It's interesting because remember in Ephesus, it, it, Jesus commended them and he said, I, I know that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I do as well. Not that he didn't hate the Nicolaitans, he hated the, the deeds. So what went from deeds in Ephesus, think about this, that the Ephesians hated, to doctrine now absorbed in Pergamum. In Ephesus, it was just deeds that the Ephesians church managed to hold, managed to hold it back. Because remember, they were contenders. They were contenders for the truth. They were the ones that, that would not allow false apostles in. They had all that down pat. They just forgot the love bit. Now we see a different issue. Now we see what's been hated in Ephesus has now been absorbed to become doctrine and teaching in Pergamum. I think a good question for us to ask ourselves, are there pagan teachings that lead people astray that were rejected and hated a generation or two ago for us now <clears throat> that are being adopted in and accommodated in modern-day church life? I want you to think about that. I want you to ponder how Jesus views this. All right, that's just a little side note. You got that bit for free. All right, so... That's the situation. They hold to wrong teachings. Now let's look at how does Jesus present himself to resolve the issue. Well, he says, I'm the one who has the two-edged sword. Now, what's the interpretation of that? Well, we know the sword is a picture of the word of God. Ephesians 6.17 says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Hebrews 4.12, wow. All of us should know this one by heart. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That's how powerful the word of God is. It separates all our soulish thoughts, all the, the parts of us that want our ears tickled by the latest doctrines and gathered to ourselves and accumulate teachers and tickle our ears. That's the soulish part. But it separates that. The word of God separates and speaks to our spirit man, which is being renewed, has been renewed. We have the spirit of God in us, in our spirit man. Now, what does this tell us? That the only way to deal with false doctrine is with true doctrine. The only way to deal with false teaching is with true teaching. 
the correction to your error, this is what Jesus is basically saying if I, if I paraphrase, the, the correction to your error is only found in the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So then what does he do? He gives them an invitation to repent. Repent or else I am coming to you quickly and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth. In other words, repent or I'll cut you off and I'll separate that group. Just like he separates the thoughts and intentions of our heart. He separates joints from marrow. He, uh, sorry, uh, what is it? The, the joints from the marrow, that's right. And he separates the soul from the spirit. He says, I'm going to separate and I'll cut off and I'll separate that group. So he's saying, you better fight swiftly. You better, because I'm coming swiftly. Okay. The sword of the word of God. That's how we deal with error. So they desperately needed to see their doctrinal error in the light of Jesus, who Jesus is, with the two-edged sword, the word of God, the only thing able to correct their erroneous belief system. If they would see their situation in the light of who he is, then the one with authority to make war against false believers, yeah, that's what he was going to do, it would lead them to repent. And then what would he do? He would restore truth to them. And he would coach them to victory. Come on, he's our coach. He's our high priest. And he wants to coach us to victory. All right, let's keep going. Thyatira. Hmm. Interesting. Remember, what's their situation? All right, the situation. What are they in? And how are they seeing it in the light of who Jesus truly is? Well, their situation is that they tolerated and yielded control to a false seer, a false prophetess, a woman that Jesus called Jezebel. And yet he commended them. He commended them for their love, their faith. That, they're things that Ephesian, the Ephesian church wasn't commended for, remember? They, they, didn't have, they didn't have love. They just had hard work. They didn't have faith. They just slogged it out and did what they needed to do. So you sort of start to see all the different uh, uh, perspectives of how people are living, but Jesus brings to the surface the one area that they're missing out on. So they were commended for their love, their faith, their service, their patient endurance. And in fact, he says, your deeds of late are greater than at the first. So he's really saying, wow, you're doing even better in this area. Remember with Ephesus, <laughs> they actually waned from where they started. He's, he's like, remember, go back. You, you, you've, you've abandoned your love that you had at first. Whereas these guys, their deeds and their works were greater than what they were at the start. So that's a good thing. But still Jesus is holding them accountable. There's still a warning here. There's still an issue here that he needs to address. Because it says that basically they had lost their rulership as a church and their leadership of their church, that handed over leadership of their church to a woman who called herself a prophetess. She was a false teacher. She was a false leader. And she refused to repent of her acts of immorality. Now, Jezebel, same spirit. Different name as in Pergamum, but it's basically the same spirit. It's a seduction of God's people to idolatry and sexual sins. That's what Jezebel did in the Old Testament. And that's what this woman whom Jesus called Jezebel, basically using the Old Testament Jezebel as a picture so they would understand. We don't really know what her actual name was. But basically saying it's the same thing. It's the same spirit. It's just a different name. Paganism. Uh, sexual immorality, distortion of worship, all the, all the, the same things as, um, as it was in Pergamum. You know what Balaam and, and the Nicolaitans were saying? It's the same, same spirit that is behind all of it, okay? Paganism, sexual immorality, and distortion of worship. And so we need to be really, really careful about what it is that we're allowing in. They even declared their own doctrine, 
In fact, Jesus in, in verse 24 said, uh, they're called the deep things of Satan. And then he goes on to say, as they call them. So he's making a little dig here and a point here. That he's not saying they are the deep things of Satan. Like we can't take that and go, oh my gosh, these things are the deep things of Satan. No. He says they call them the, dead th- the deep things of Satan. So he's kind of going, this is what they say. So they're, they're forming their own sort of doctrines out of all of this. It's ridiculous. Exalting Satan way more than he should be exalted. So how does Jesus present himself to resolve the issue? Okay, this is how he presents himself. The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. All right, now we understand. How do we interpret this? We understand that the eyes are used to see. And in the Old Testament, a prophet was called a seer. And also in the Bible, bronze is a symbol of judgment. So this shows Jesus as the true seer, as the true prophet, and the one with the authority to judge. So he is the true seer and the true judge over false prophets and false spirits. Guys, No wonder in 1 Corinthians 14, in order for you and I to operate in the right spirit, in the true spirit, you and I must judge prophetic words. You know, it says if there are two or three prophets gathered together, that's when you have to have two or three to be able to witness and to judge a particular word. And also it says you have to judge yourself. You know, the spirit of the prophet is subject to the prophet, to to the actual prophet himself or herself. And you start to see how the prophetic and judgment and correction is all joined into one and the same because Jesus is the Son of God who has flames of fire. He's the true seer and his feet feet are like burnished bronze. He's the true judge. He's the one that rules. Now, when it comes to operating in the spirit and operating in the prophetic, you know, there's prayer, there's worship. You know what? I'm going to say this. I'm 62 years old now, okay? That's not what I wanted to say. But after all these years, I've seen many people pray. I've seen many people worship. I've heard many people prophesy. And, you know, these people call themselves intercessors. Some people call themselves apostolic intercessors, whatever on earth that means. I've got no understanding what that means. But this, they call themselves apostolic intercessors and they travel the world and they pray and they intercede and they do all sorts of things. But I'm telling you now, I don't care whether you pray in tongues and worship and pray and prophesy till the cows come home, you do it 24-7. If you don't obey the correct teachings or come under authority, then you're a false prophet and you're a false seer. And that's all there is to it. So, We learn that from this. And also, we don't get to make up our own doctrines and teachings. And I see a lot of these people, they go off into these weird spiritual streams. See, what's the core value that I see here in this church? Is that we have to operate in the right spirit. And believe me, I've seen whole streams of people that that we all seem to start off the same and they worship and pray and intercede just like I do and Bram does and and people that I know do, but they kind of go off here and then they start to get into these wacky doctrines and they become false teachers, false leaders. They begin to gather to themselves just like this woman Jezebel did and they begin to take over churches and they begin to dominate with their teachings and dominate with their spiritual things, but somehow they have spiritual knowledge that other people don't have. Sounds like Gnosticism to me. 
They start to see things and hear things and have this false knowledge that supposedly the church doesn't have, that the leaders of the church doesn't have. But remember, Jesus holds the seven stars in his hand. He speaks to his ministers first. He's going to speak to Brahm first. He's going to speak to the other senior pastors out there first. He's going to speak to his ministry first. And then he's going to speak to his congregation. He's not going to allow some woman, man, whatever it is. It's a spirit, remember? Come in and begin to be a false teacher, a false leader, and a and bring false doctrines and false prophecy. And and talk about the deep things of Satan. No, 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 no. You've got to listen and you've got to judge. And so Jesus says, I'm the one with eyes like flames of fire. I'm the one that sees everything. I see what you're saying. I see the motive of your heart. I know where this is coming from. And I have not appointed you. I'm not holding you in my right hand. You don't belong in this position. You've usurped authority and you've positioned yourself into a position of leadership that I never gave you. Hmm. So he reveals himself also. He goes on further to the churches by stating that he is the one who searches the minds and the hearts. Why? Because he's got the eyes that are like flames of fire. He sees. He's the true prophet. He's the true seer. And I will give to each one of them according to their deeds. That's scary because if you read what happens to the woman called Jezebel and the ones that follow her, her her so-called children, go back and read it or go back and listen to that sermon, okay? I will give to each one of them according to their deeds. See, guys, Jesus is in control. We think we're going along building these amazing churches and doing these amazing things. The whole time he's walking around us. He's walking around like a high priest around the lampstands and he's going, hmm, how are these guys going? Let me check them out. All right, I need to deal with something. I'm I'm going to try and present myself to them and I'm going to give them time to repent. I'm going to see if their leaders, I'm going to see if their senior pastors are listening to me. I'm going to see if their senior eldership are actually listening to me and they'll follow the leading of my spirit. I'll give them time to repent but if they don't guys I'm in control alright so then there's an invitation to rule with him if they will hold fast to rule with them if they will hold fast wow he offered them rulership with him he promised to share his authority with them over nations this is the call of god this is the this is what i'm calling you to if you just listen you will conquer he's inviting them see if they would just see their issue of tolerating false prophets in the light of who he is the true prophet and the true judge then you know what he would restore their sight to discern and he would coach them to victory and they would have rulership over nations wow all right let's go on to sardis Sardis, remember, Jesus, we can't see Jesus in the light of the situation we are in, but we've got to see the situation we are in in the light of who Jesus really is. So what's the situation Sardis is in? They have a reputation for being alive, but Jesus says, no, you're dead. So out there in the world, this is a happening church. They've got it going. They are the it thing. They've got the biggest Instagram following. They've got the coolest graphics. They've got all the hype. They've got everything happening. All the young people are going there. They've got a mosh, everything, mosh pit. They've got the smoke machine. They have a reputation for being alive. Everyone in the city is going to them. They're huge. I'm just making that up. But anyway, that's what a reputation for being alive can look like, right? But he says, wake up, wake up. In other words, they were asleep. They were asleep. How were they asleep? 
And in fact, he goes on to say, what remains is dying. He says, you've got a little bit left there, but even what remains is dying. And he says, your works are not complete. You might have it all happening. You might have this reputation for for being out there in the community and doing all these works of service and doing all these things. And maybe you're you've got the biggest name in the in in the city for feeding the poor. And 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 you you've got this reputation for really being alive. I mean, you can go in all sorts of directions for what it means to have a reputation that you're alive. It could it could include our church. It could include any church that we know, right? This sort of stuff puts the fear of God in me. Diane, you've got a reputation for doing your manifest conferences, for doing DMS. You're alive. You've got it happening. But Jesus says, no, you're dead. See, when I read this, this puts the fear of God in me. It really does. Because I put myself, I insert our church into all of these different ones and go, Lord, what are we doing? How are we responding? What uh, do we think we're doing great? Our reputation, we've had a reputation for being alive. Are we dead? All right, let's keep looking. So he says, your works are not complete. You're dead. What little they did have, they now stood to lose and they needed to repent. Or he said, I'm going to come like a thief unless you wake up. So this church is lifeless. If Ephesus was loveless, this one's lifeless. In other words, they were no longer drawing life from him. All right. So how does Jesus present himself? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. All right, let's let's try and understand what this means. This is a picture of Jesus having the sevenfold aspects of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to explain that in a sec. As a life-giving force and him holding the leaders of churches in his right hand. Remember, he's in charge of them and he is the solution to them as the life-giving force. He's got them. He's got the leaders in his hands. Yeah? And he also has the seven spirits of God. So he's got the authority over the churches and he's got them. If they'll just look to him and see their situation of lifelessness, being asleep, being almost dead, and look to him and draw from them, draw from the right source. This is the core value that we're seeing here, having the right source to draw from, not drawing from you know, our Instagram following, not drawing from the, the likes that we get on our social media pages, not drawing from the numbers that we even have in our building. That's not our source of strength. I mean, there are so many. I'm just talking off the top of my head here. There are so many ways that we can draw from other sources that kind of make us think that we're alive. But Jesus says, no, you need to look to me. And he's in charge of them and he is the solution to them as the life-giving force. Let me explain just very briefly from the scripture. and Actually, the scripture will explain it. Isaiah 11 1 to 2 says this, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear forth, which is Jesus. Okay, that means Jesus. And the Spirit of the Lord, these are the sevenfold aspects of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord, number one, shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, and the Spirit of the, of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord. These are the sevenfold aspects of the Spirit of God. So Jesus is in perfect oneness with the Spirit because the Spirit of the Lord is upon him. Okay? That, that branch and from his roots shall bear forth fruit, which is Jesus. So in him, in Jesus, is the fullness of supply of the Holy Spirit, the saddest, saddest sorely needed as Jesus stood there in their midst. Think about that. 
in him the fullness of the supply of the Holy Spirit that they desperately needed was in him as he stood there in their midst. So he gave them an invitation to wake up, strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die, and remember what you have seen and heard. Keep it and repent. Wake up because I'm in charge. So if they would view their issue of being almost dead in light of who he is, the source of true life-giving force, then what does he do? He restores the breath or the life of Christ back in them and he coaches them to victory. All right, now let's get to the last church of the warning. The, the, the five churches that received the warning. What was their situation? Well, a lot of people already know what this one is. They were lukewarm. He actually said, you say you're rich, but you're not. You say, you're very wretched, actually. You're, a, you're pitiable. You're poor. You're blind. You're naked. You, you have lacked the refining fire of God. Wow. You are shamed by your spiritual nakedness. This is incredibly strong language. You are spiritually blind. In other words, they had lost reliance on Jesus. They were self-reliant. The way I see them is that they were completely deluded. They didn't even realize that they'd lost reliance on Jesus. They didn't realize that they were no longer true witnesses of Jesus. You know how I know that they were deluded and thinking that they were doing everything right? Because they were told to listen for Jesus knocking at the door. That's how I know. In other words, Jesus is already on the outside looking in, knocking it back on their door. That's why some people say, you know, in half the churches we see around the world, Jesus isn't even in there. Well, when I read this, I can kind of understand why. He's trying to get their attention. The language that he uses, he says, I'm knocking on the door. <laughs> That's the language that is used for unbelievers or people who are seeking God. You know, Matthew 7 says, verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you. It's like that's somebody who's seeking Jesus, not to the church, who's meant to be the demonstrators and the witness to who Jesus is in that city. They're meant to already be this organized, orchestrated group of people with an angel, a messenger, a leader over them who is in the hand of Jesus. And they're meant to be ruling and reigning in that place, being salt and being light and being, bringing forth a testimony. So they lost sight of the true chief of the church and their need for him. That's how I see it. They're lukewarm. They didn't even recognize that they still needed Jesus. He's outside knocking on the door and they're like, I, I it's not even, why is Jesus knocking at the door? They can't even barely hear him. That's how lukewarm, how deluded they are, how self-reliant they are. And that's why Abraham said last week he had to almost reintroduce himself. So he's no longer ruling in the spirit. They, sorry, they are no longer ruling in the spiritual sense. They have no authority. They've relinquished their authority. They've yielded their authority. They've lost their authority to be salt, to be a light in the city, and to be a witness to the truth. That's what. That's essentially who we are. We are meant to be here to be demonstrators, and 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 uh, those that testify of the goodness of God. That's who we are. We're meant to be. We're not just lukewarm and just have a label as Christians or a cool name as a church with all the whiz bang stuff on stage. Who cares? If we lose our salt and lose our light and lose our ability to be a witness, we're nothing. We're lukewarm. We're deluded. We're we're self deceived. All right, so how does Jesus present himself? He presents himself as the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning. And that word beginning means the ruler, the chief of creation. And it says in Revelations 1.5, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the faithful, uh, sorry, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler 
of kings on earth. This is a picture of the one who demonstrated the Father to us in the flesh as the witness to who God actually is here on earth. That's why he is the ruler of kings on earth. He came here. He demonstrated. He was a witness. That's why it says he is the amen, the true one, the faithful and true witness. And he's the beginning, which means he's the ruler and he is the chief of all creation. In other words, when he came here to witness who God is, he's saying, um, you know, I have seen the Father and I'm showing you him now. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father because he's a witness to who the Father is. So what's his invitation? His invitation is buy from me gold refined by fire, white garments to clothe your nakedness, I solve to anoint your eyes and zealously repent and to zealously repent in order to rule with him. That's what he's saying to them. And demonstrate, demonstrate his rulership as his witnesses. And he says in verse 21, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne. See, that's, that's a picture of rulership. This is what I was trying to get at when I gave out my little cryptic invitation to you guys to see if you could figure out what their issue was, what they had lost. They'd lost their ability to be in authority. And what was the invitation and what, what could they see in Jesus? This is what they could, this is how they needed to see Jesus. It was language of joint rulership which they had relinquished. See, if they could just see this situation of losing sight of the true chief of the church in light of who he is, the one who has ruled and been chief from the beginning, then it will lead them to repent. <clears throat> and what will he do? He'll restore authority to them and coach them to victory. All right. So now we finish up with the last two churches. Now, he doesn't give warnings to these churches. He gives promises to these churches. They weren't the last two in the series. They were number two and number six. But I've kept them to the end because they're different. Smyrna, what was their situation? Beautiful Smyrna. They would suffer tribulation even unto death. He said to them, you know tribulation. You know what it feels like. You are poor, but really you're rich. You've been blasphemed. You've been slandered. And then he goes on to say, and actually you're about to suffer and the devil will cast some of you in prison and you will be tested. You will have tribulation and some of you will die. This is how he presents himself to them. This is the answer to their situation. In their situation, how can they look to Jesus? How can they view their situation in the light of who Jesus truly is? Well, he presents himself this way, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. So what does this tell us? This tells us that he is the beginning and he's the end and he sees the beginning from the end. And then he promises them, based on that he says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life and you won't be hurt by the second death. See, this is a promise. This is an assurance. He's spurring them on. He said, you will do as I did. He says, don't worry. I can see everything from the beginning and to the end. In fact, I am the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. I am the first and I am the last. I can see I'm not restricted by time. I see everything. And all I want you to do is to be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life and you won't be hurt by the second death. So he's spurring them on. He's not warning them. He's promising them. He says, you will do as I did. You will go from death to life. Your death is just a new beginning and you will go to life because why? I have made a way for you. I also died and I've come to life. 
You see, he holds himself up and says, it's okay, some of you are going to die, but I've also died. But now I've come to life. So come on, this is the promise. It's going to happen. Just look to me, I've made a way for you. So if they would see the issue of persecution and death in the light of Jesus being made alive from the dead, they would realize that life waiting for them after, there is life waiting for them after death, in spite of the persecution and tribulation. And then it will lead them and cause them to endure. And you know what he does? He strengthens their faithfulness. He strengthens their faithfulness. You know what the core value is I see in this church? Suffering. It's interesting, isn't it? Jesus didn't take the suffering away. He didn't say, repent from this and you won't suffer anymore. He says, no, 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 some of you are going to die. But it's okay. I died and I've come back to life. And I've made a way for you and you're going to do the same. Suffering is actually an incredible core value that Jesus has. Interesting, isn't it? All right, let's, let's look at the last church. Philadelphia. Philadelphia. What is their situation that they have to uh, view their situation in light of who Jesus truly is to them? Well, they were shut out of the synagogue, which was huge for them. That was their place of worship. That was the context of where they would worship God. They were rejected. Basically, they were disenfranchised. You could say they were homeless. They were disdained. And it, it also tells us that they had little power. Isn't that interesting? Little power. Um, I'll touch on that. I'll come back to that in a minute. They kept, but it, Jesus says, but you kept my word of perseverance and you didn't deny my name. So how does Jesus present himself to them? Well, he says, he who is holy and who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. Now, what does that really mean? This is what it means. It means he holds the key of kingdom authority to open and close what no man can shut. He can do whatever he wants and can allow whomever he wants to go in and experience the blessings of the kingdom. And then he makes a promise and he says, but I put before you an open door that no one can shut. So this is the promise that he makes to them. He says, you might have been shut out by these Jews. You might have been rejected and disdained. Even though you have little power, you feel homeless. You feel like you've got nowhere to really worship me. You know, but he says, but I'm the one that holds the key to the authority that, that opens doors and closes doors. And I'm putting before you an open door, an open door, pretty much an open door of salvation, an open door uh, that no one can shut because he has the authority to establish this. And then he gives another promise. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie, I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Wow. And then he goes on with another promise. He keeps promising these guys. And he, says to, and, and he says, I will keep you from the hour of testing. That's another incredible promise that is coming upon the world. And then he makes another promise. He says, I will make you a pillar in the temple that no one can rob you of. Because why? Because I've got the keys. He says, and you are my temple. He says, they've rejected you. They think they're Jews, but they're really not. They're lying. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make you pillars in that very temple. These Christian believers who were denied their place of worship by the very people, the Jews, who are so temple-oriented, will instead become pillars in the new spiritual temple. Hence the Jews will learn that I have loved you. Wow. And not only that, there's another promise. 
He says, I will also write on you the name of my God and the name of the city of my God and my own new name. Wow. Who even knows what that means? I don't, but that's pretty intense. Why? Why can he say all this? Because you know why? He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the, king of, the key of David, David talks about a throne and authority, he will open and that no one, he will open things that no one can shut and he who shuts and he will shut things that no one can open. Guys, he is in complete and utter control. If they would just see their issue of rejection by the religious establishment that, that they had been part of, in light of Jesus holding the key to kingdom authority, they would realize his promises are worth waiting for. And then it will lead them to hold fast so no one will take their crown. And you know what he does? He establishes the reward of their suffering and he cements their new identity. Wow. And he coaches them to victory. You see, this is what I see about all this and we're finishing now. And I want the music team to just get ready. But Jesus has the last laugh, guys. He has the last laugh with all the mockery, all the disdain. Think about this. He's promising them. He's assuring them. He's spurring them on. You know, he's saying they close doors on you, but I hold the keys and I have the power to open wide things for you. What fascinates me the most is that out of Smyrna and Philadelphia, they were the two outwardly the most weakest looking churches. Think about it. They were, they were poor. They were powerless. You know, I read earlier that they had little power. They had tribulation. They looked like they were just the plebs of, of, of the church planting movement or the plebs of the 21st century. I want us to, we have to think like this in, in context of who we are right now. This puts the fear of God in me. How do I see other churches? How do I view other things? Do I view something just because outwardly it looks like it has a reputation of being alive? How does Jesus see that? Because how does Jesus view me? How does he view our church? They were the two weakest looking churches and yet they had heaven's endorsement. They had his commandment. You see how Jesus sees his church is so different to how natural man sees it. Wow. They were poor, disdained, reputation. And yet, Jesus doesn't see things like that. It was the opposite for Jesus. Why? Because he has complete rulership. We need to see our issues in the light of who Jesus is. Why? Why do we need to see our issues in the light of who Jesus is? Because he wants to live his life through his church. Okay? We have to allow him to be the love in us. We have to allow him to be the suffering servant in us, enabling us to do the same. You know, I always say, let's act like the persecuted church before the persecution. He has to be the teacher in us and we have to obey his truth. He has to be the, the true prophetic spirit amongst us according to the correct order and authority. He has to be the life giver, the source of life in us. He has to be the one that perseveres in us. Just like in, in, in Philadelphia, that was the, the core value in them was that they persevered regardless. And he has to be the true witness, the salt and the demonstrator of authority in us. So guys... As we finish off with this worship song, let's, 
Let's be a church that hears what the Spirit is saying to us. So I'm going to pray right now. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you, Lord, that you are speaking to us, that we, yes, that we are blessed, Lord, for, for reading it out loud, Lord, for listening to it, to obeying it, and to, to keeping what we are reading here, Lord. I pray, Heavenly Father, that your word would penetrate into our hearts and that we would, that we would hear and that we would see what your Spirit is saying to us. Lord, let us have ears to hear and eyes to see. Heavenly Father, I just worship you, Lord. And I ask you, Father, we would be a church that that humbles ourselves and, and allows you to be the high priest over us, Lord. In Jesus' name.